I was able to think through kind of these issues and, and have my own perspective on them. And they couldn't be more different than, than what I was exposed to as a kid. It's impacted when we don't have everybody at the table. And once we can increase the number of women scientists, Hi everyone! Welcome to the penultimate episode of Roots to Reason. I'm Sarah, I'm your host. Really excited for today's episode. We're speaking with two professors at the University of Montana, both interviewed by our members Damara and Sierra. Today's episode features the contrast between a social scientist's mind and a hard scientist's mind, and how those ways of knowing the world affect interactions with people in the environment. Let's hear from Corey first. Let's see. Um, Corey Cleveland. I'm a professor of ecosystem ecology and biogeochemistry in the College of Forestry and Conservation at the University of Montana. I am a he, him. Um, I'm 51 years old. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised? Yeah. So... I was actually born in Des Moines, Iowa, and I don't remember living there. My parents set off on a, um, like basically a road trip when I was like two years old and they had some friends who had moved to Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And so, and they had been sort of planning a move. And so they drove out West looking for possibly someplace to relocate and they ended up in Steamboat. And so I, at the time they were in the midst of all their planning and traveling, I was staying with my grandmother. And so then when they found a place to put down some roots, they, she grabbed me and put me on a plane and then took me to steamboat. And I, so I spent from when I was two and I graduated from high school. So I, I've spent all of my memories are from, of growing up are from steamboat, Colorado. So I had a rural upbringing. Um, and so I was pretty isolated, especially like in the summer, you know, like I wasn't going to camps and doing stuff like that. But, but I remember like some of the best memories when I was about eight years old, I came home one afternoon and my parents had been out for the day and they came back and there was something in the back of the pickup truck. And I was like, what is that? And so I wandered back home and they bought me a motorcycle And so, and this was my childhood that I remember was literally like, I was outside all the time and I was constantly on that motorcycle. So it was my, it was my passport to like exploration. Right. So I didn't have a car. I was a little kid, but I could just ride on these rural country roads and, you know, go to see friends who lived really like quite far away because I had this mode of transportation from when I was really young. And so my summers, you know, like I would just ride somewhere and then go hiking or ride somewhere and just constantly out um, on that motorcycle. I was very outdoorsy as a kid. So I, so I would say my, my upbringing and and my memories as a kid were largely connected to the outdoors. My core values, many of them are strongly rooted to the outside world and to the environment. Who were your role models or inspiration growing up? I got a lot as an early kid by reading Edward Abbey. And I feel like there's, I still have a whole library of Edward Abbey books, but I, 
I remember right reading Hayduke Lives and thinking about you know Edward Abbey traveling around the desert and throwing beer cans out the car, which seems so like unlike I would picture Eddie Edward Abbey, but but his but his passion for and like I said because I was developing this passion and strong interest in in the outdoors and and the environment. I think you know to me Edward Abbey was someone that I felt like not as much of a role model, but someone that I really I could. I could relate with and understand, I think, as an aside or as a connection to that. So my dad was very conservative. He's hardcore Republican, even now is a hardcore climate denier. Um, and so and and was not in, into environmental stuff at all. And so I got that. It's very ironic that I became that I became the person that I am because he was fundamentally not into that stuff. Um, and so the person that I became and the core values that I would say I most, I most strongly hold myself to are things that I learned and got on my own, not stuff that I got from my parents. And, 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 and it's been hard, right? Like, because we have very little in common, especially now. And he, he feels like, I think that he's not interested at all in what I do. Like, it's just not something he's interested in. Um, And so it's made, you know, relationships are built in many ways on a currency of common interests and common, you know, common perceptions. And we just have very few in common and it's made it tough. So kind of talking more about your work, which, um, you deal a lot with climate studies. Mm-hmm. Can you describe your feelings about climate change? I would put myself very firmly in the alarmed category, right? So, so I, I think climate change is the biggest, well, until recently, right? Outside of the threat of some global nuclear Armageddon, I would say that climate change is the biggest threat that we've ever faced as a species um, and as a planet. I think that, you know, and a lot of my perception obviously has been informed by other people, but I think the way I think it's Catherine Hayhoe frames it, right? The five words that she uses to describe it is like, it's here, right? It's real. Um, And we have to do something about it. Like that's what I feel about climate change. And I feel like literally every single day that we waste is, is it's just not, we don't have time to, to wait anymore. I felt, I thought a lot about climate change during COVID, right? And some of the parallels between climate change and COVID. The one striking difference to me is that there's no vaccine for climate change, right? Like we are not going to, with technology or with some, there's no silver bullet thing that's just going to fix it, right? And so whatever we're committing to debt, we've already committed ourselves to decades of climate change. How do you handle interactions with people who disagree with your beliefs on climate change? When I'm talking to people about climate change, first of all, I think you have to be respectful, right? You have to take the high road and understand that 
the surest way to get someone to just tune out is to, to um, talk about them in a patronizing, think about it in a patronizing way or to dismiss what they have to say. I think the most productive conversations I've had about climate change are ones where it's like, you know, you just try and explain to people from your perspective, like, here's what we know, right? And I think a lot of the, a lot of the challenge, if we think about, yeah, the majority of people in this country, and I would say it's even more um, in, in developed, in the developed world, outside of the U.S., climate change is even more widely accepted than it is here, but it's increasingly more and more accepted that it's a real thing here. For the people who are resistant to that, I think a lot of it comes down to livelihoods. It's not as much that maybe those people even believe, yeah, climate change is is a real thing, but it threatens their livelihood. And I think when it comes down to it, it's very difficult to ask people and expect people whose paychecks and their families are relying on their jobs, which are directly contributing to climate change. So it's easier just to deny that it's happening. Describe your thoughts, emotions into like three words surrounding climate change. A, it's happening right now. Um, I think I would say that it's urgent, right? My feelings the urgency only grows. It doesn't get smaller, right? And so, and that, and that urgency doesn't just mean urgency that governments deal with climate change, but urgency that everyone in every aspect of their lives thinks about what can I do to help address this problem, right? And, you know, you think about what, well, I have to drive my car, but like, <laughs> do you, right? Every single day, do you, do you, do you have to do something or are you choosing to do something? And so from, from, you know, my everyday life, constantly thinking about what, how is my, how are my actions contributing to this? So it's, so it's at multiple levels. So it's, it's urgent that we all do that all the time. Um, but I, I would still, even though I have to say that I'm sometimes discouraged, I'm still super hopeful. Right. And I'm hopeful that, we just don't have a choice. Right. And, and so, and I still, people like I have to, this is going to sound corny, but, but the fact that you guys are doing something like this is the stuff that makes me hopeful, right? Like that you recognize that this is important. You know, your podcast is the kind of latest way that people are consuming information. Right. And so that you're taking the time and focusing on this as part of what you want to help with this problem too. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing this podcast. And so that's the stuff that just endlessly gives me hope, right? That they're, that, that we're never going to do this at the pace that, that I want us to, or that we want us to, or maybe even that we need to, but it's happening. Um, and so I, I, I just won't let myself be pessimistic about it. And I would say, that certainly one of those words is still hope. I also wanted to touch a little bit on some biases maybe and mm. see if you've ever thought about how your own biases or upbringing have like shaped your relationship with the environment. Well, that's what I was kind of getting at early on is that I don't think, I think if anything, my perceptions, I was 
biased in the other direction, right? So all of the, my, my perceptions about this were, I would like to think, right? Like was critical thinking about this stuff. It wasn't that I was being fed stuff. You know, I see, I see rallies and stuff with little kids holding signs and I'm like, like that's bias, right? Like when parents are, you know, making signs for their little tiny kids who probably can't even read and write and they're holding them up at rallies. Like that feels like bias to me. The, the reality is, is that, like I said, I, it's amazing that I ended up where I am given my upbringing because it was the polar opposite, right? Like I'm sure I've never asked, but I'm sure, you know, like, I don't want to get political, but I'm, but I would be pretty shocked if my parents voting and, and sort of politics aren't just fundamentally different than mine. Um, And so, but in spite of all that, I was able to think through kind of these issues and, and have my own perspective on them. And they couldn't be more different than, than what I was exposed to as a kid. Does this awareness affect conversations you have with people who don't share the same views? I mean, I'm more sort of curious about why, right? And like how, what makes you think that, right? Like, what is it that, what is it that's confusing to you? Or what is it that's, Again, and that even that question can seem patronizing, right? But like, where do the do your perceptions come from, right? Like, and and trying to be inquisitive about it and and disarming and not. I think a lot of times, like people just tune out because they think like uh, these pointy-headed scientists, like they don't, they have this agenda, right? The whole idea that climate change is a hoax because scientists are trying to get rich. Like what? <laughs> Where is that coming from? Um, but I think you know the in in communicating with people about that, it, it's hard right? Like, I wish there was, I wish I could just give you like a solid, like, here's the formula for doing this. There's not, right? Like, and it's challenging. Every time I'm in a campground, right? Like, or somewhere around a mix of people, like of diverse kind of backgrounds and perspectives, right? I see all sorts of stuff that's happening that I just don't understand. And it makes, it's really hard. And I think one of the disappointing things about our world right now is that we've become so tribal that we don't even want to listen to each other anymore, right? The dialogue doesn't even happen because of someone's aggressiveness or someone, you know, like we just don't seem like we're on the same team anymore. And that's, that's really frustrating to me because, you know, like when it comes to climate change, it requires all of us, right? Like we need everyone to be on the same team here. And increasingly, I feel like we're so polarized and so close-minded about the other tribe that that dialogue is really hard to have. Um, So, you know, it's just a never-ending thing, right? Like, I think it's just, you have to keep plugging away at the areas, you know, for me, I don't have tons of opportunities to engage with climate denier people, right? But I do have tons of opportunities to engage with students, right? And so I try and do it that way. Um, And, you know, but conversations 
you know, this is the other part of it too. We, we tend to sort of segregate like in Missoula, right? Missoula is very segregated in the sense that, you know, we all or many of us share the same sorts of values and beliefs, um, but, and we don't interact as much with people who don't. Um, but it's a challenge. And I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this, right? Like what is the best way to engage this? But I think, you know, I am optimistic when you look at the data, people, and like I said, it's, it's increasingly the vast majority of people in this country recognize that climate change at least is a big problem, right? What's caused it and what to do about it. There's a little more controversy, but, but I think the vast majority of people recognize that it's a problem now. Um, And so you start there. I want to know if there is any other big factors that inhibit people's ability to have productive conversations about climate change and the environment. Well, I think with a lot of things, like as, as this is the case with a lot of things, disinformation has become a massive problem in climate change dialogue. Um, and, and, you know, people in some ways don't know, right? Like they, they, they consume, we're, we consume our information from the people who are likely to tell us what we want to hear these days, right? And so people are consuming information that's just wrong. And that's really hard. Like as we see with so many aspects of our society, how disinformation is just so problematic. So you were talking about there is a lot of polarization right now and it's hard to have conversations. We're very tribal. Mm -hmm. How do you think we're going to get past that? Yeah, I, I, it's a great question. I think lots of people are grappling with this question right now in all sorts of different aspects of life. But I think, you know, there are things that we, like, I think I'll, I'll use Montana as an example, right? So like, there are things, even though we think about our two tribes here, right, of our circles, right? Like what we need to focus on is the, in the Venn diagram is what lies at the intersection of these two groups, Um, and I think there are some things, right? Like in Montana, our outdoor way of life is a very, very, feels like a uniting, um, a uniting aspect of, of what it is to be a Montana. Right. And so, you know, people, hunters, right. Many hunters, I would say may have very conservative, you know, politics, but so do a lot of like my liberal friends at UM, right? They're hunters and they enjoy hunting and being in the outdoors. And so, so there are things I feel like I, and this is kind of comes full circle in some sense, because the environment in some ways is something I think people in Montana, all, you know, public land rights, right? Like that's something that almost every single Montana is in support of. And so you have to find, I think, these core things that do bring people together. And once they start talking to each other again, right, in a sort of disarming atmosphere and, and, and they are sort of united by a common set of principles related to access, for example, then I think, then it gives the opportunity to start getting to know each other a little bit more. And, and you know, if you know someone, I think you're more likely to listen to them than someone you're, you don't know. And so building community again and trying to focus on like what are things that bring us, that do unite us. 
As you all have heard and picked up on, a major theme of this podcast is analyzing how our backgrounds and the way that we were raised impact our relationships to the environment present day. Um, And something that we found very fascinating about Corey's interview was how you can be raised one way and walk in a completely different direction as an adult. So we challenge you to think about the way you were raised and whether or not your actions, attitudes, and behaviors match those of your parents, guardians, mentors, whoever you grew up around as a child. The next person we'll be hearing from is Twyla Old Coyote, who is the newly appointed director of Sea Change on campus, which supports women and advances gender equity. Twyla has extensive experience working with high school and university students to promote access to higher education, especially for students who came from historically marginalized populations. For the past seven years, she's served as the director of TRIO Upward Bound, a program that builds a college-going culture among underserved and underrepresented high school students by enhancing the skills and motivation necessary for students to complete high school and be successful in college. We had a brief conversation with Twyla surrounding her expertise in these social science issues, uh, focusing on systemic bias, equality, and equal representation. Here's Twyla. My name is Twyla Old Coyote. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am an enrolled member of the Crow Tribe and also a member of the Grovant Tribe and grew up in Montana, both on and off the reservation. Will you just share with us your journey from leaving your home area for college to your current position as a faculty member at the University of Montana? How much time do we have? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, gosh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, well, I graduated from Browning High School, which is located on the Blackfeet Reservation, came to UM and got my bachelor's degree in psychology with a minor in Native American studies. After graduation, I moved to California for a few years, came back to UM and worked in the Native American studies department and went on and got my master's in intercultural youth and family development, which changed to global youth development And then I don't think it survived the cuts. So I don't believe that program is around anymore. Um, And then worked at the other uh, flagship institution on the other side of the mountains (laughs) for a few years um, before coming back to UM, uh, where I was the director of our TRIO Upward Bound program until the last couple of years when I was hired as the Sea Change Director. Who were your role models or inspirations when you were growing up? I have seven aunties on my mom's side, four on my dad's side. And I just, I feel like I come from a long line of strong, independent women. And our tribes are matriarchal. And so um, I've always just, looked up to them. I mean, they're, you know, each of them are amazing um, in their own ways. So 
Were you exposed to environmental issues at a young age? Yeah. Um, you know, where my mom's family is from, um, up on the High Line, they had uh, mining that um, happens within the community. And now they're, you know, they can't drink the water. There's a lot of community members who have like long-term illnesses and like lots of cancers. And so um, I really feel like that's related to their environment. Um, And, you know, of course the mining company has never cleaned up any of that. So I would say for sure, I would say directly have been impacted by, by those environmental issues. You've already sort of touched on this, but um, are there any like other specific times in your life where climate change impacts have affected like you personally? I don't know, the fires and like stuff like that, maybe. A few years ago, I actually ended up buying an acre of land and um, we ended up putting a house on it. But all summer long, we lived in a fifth wheel camper with my three kids and my three dogs and it was a really bad fire summer and we just there was no escape you know we were you couldn't see across the street because the smoke and ash were so bad and it was like we couldn't seek any relief anywhere for us I mean you know we were living in a camper for crying out loud Um, but I would say I would say one thing like growing up is like you know we always talk about like the seven generations um, and how you need to be you have to be a steward of this land so that you know seven generations down the road you know um, they can still enjoy you know, what we've left them. So it's, it's kind of like always that seven, seven generation thinking. Yeah. It seems like it's it's always in the back of your mind. Yeah, for sure. I also grew up in a camper growing up in California. So (laughs) being around all the smoke and the fires, it's yeah. Awful. (laughs) (laughs) How does women empowerment and gender equity relate to climate change and environmental issues? I feel like we need to have more women in STEM. And so when we don't, that's when it impacts. And and it's not just environmental issues, right? It's just, you know, pretty much kind of across the board. And so I feel like it's impacted when we don't have everybody at the table. And once we can increase the number of women scientists, And I mean, that can be environmental science. It can be, um, you know, really in every, um, every science field, honestly. Um, So yeah, I feel like we have lots, lots of room to grow in that area. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Do you believe that climate change is exacerbating um, gender inequity globally? Well, when I think about like, globally you find that I don't you know it's interesting um because I had just read this book and they had gone to really small villages in a lot of like third world countries if you will 
And it was the women who were doing all of the work. And climate change started to impact like their farming ability or if they relied on fishing on the coast if the when the water got warmer there wasn't any more fish for them and so i feel like for sure it's impacting globally and that it is definitely having this impact on gender gender equity for sure and it's impacting these families' abilities to survive and thrive. So now I want to talk about a little bit about the sea change and some of the work that you do there. Um, So I got this from the website. Um, Sea Change Initiative teaches its participants to develop skills necessary to understand, navigate, and change systemic biases as they seek to become influential, like, professionals. So based off of that, um, I wanted to see if you could give me a few examples of like how people can overcome systemic biases. When we think about like systemic biases, I mean, it's really based on almost like a cycle of oppression, right? And so when you start thinking about what that cycle looks like, you know, it often starts with misinformation. So when you think about like a group of people, And when you have preconceived ideas about them, you know, if you think about women and maybe misinformation about women in general, and it can move on to, you know, mistreatment and, um, you know, based on discrimination and, um, and then it turns into, and then that's when it turns into a systemic bias, right? And so, when you are able to bring in intersectionality to that, and then once you can have those voices at the table and you create, you can kind of clear that misinformation and create an understanding, then that's how you're able to address systemic biases. Within the narrative surrounding climate change and environmental issues, biases that have developed are deeply rooted and hard to defeat. What do you think that are some ways society can overcome these biases or where is a good place to start? I would say education and building a foundational knowledge. I feel like if you know better, then you should do better. And I think that's where we need to start. The ways that people talk about these two different things and when they talk to each other about it, especially people with opposing views. I'm wondering if do you think those conversations typically go the same? Do people just decide that they disagree or agree to disagree and then leave? Or do you think that there are maybe solutions that can be made from those conversations? I think if you're able to create some empathy and understanding for me, like in trying, if I'm trying to talk to like a white cis male about gender equity and why it's important, he obviously doesn't relate to you know a woman if you will but if you can create empathy and maybe have you know they can maybe relate to a woman in their life you know their mom their wife their daughter their and if you're able to maybe go from it from like an empathy angle I think then it probably more helpful than just like we agree to disagree kind of thing 
The majority of our episodes focus on specific upbringing and how they they form our individual biases. But in this episode, we expanded that conversation to systemic biases. And a major takeaway that we had in, in conducting these conversations was the importance of not only asking how we can do better personally, but how can we come together as cultures, as societies, and work to open people's minds. Because as these conversations have demonstrated, you might not be able to change someone's mind, but you can open it. Throughout these episodes, it's been quite interesting to hear the majority of our um, interviewees come to this same space of wondering, why does someone think the way that they do? And that's really the main point of this podcast series is to encourage everyone, ourselves included, allow ourselves to slow down enough to ask why, instead of having knee-jerk reactions to things. As we come to a conclusion, we encourage all of you to ask each other why. Listen, I bet you'll be surprised by what you learn. Let's all work a little harder to open each other's minds and open our own. We all have an empathetic bone in our body. Let's go find it. Anywho, we'd like to thank our contributors, Rowan, for the wonderful music, and Aubrey for the beautiful art. And thank you all, beautiful people, for being here with us. Take care.